Okay, that is our scripture, excuse me, that is our announcements, and let's go ahead and let's go to our scripture, uh, which can be found up on the screen. This is Palm, uh, this is Matthew, good heavens. Come on, Carlos. Matthew 21, 1 through 17, and is about Palm Sunday. Now when the disciples and Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoke by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Did you, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. The word of the Lord. Well, if you could sum yourself up in a sentence, what would that sentence be? I personally like, uh, it's been taken by Oz, but the great and terrible. Carlos, the great and terrible. Sounds like a great way to sum oneself up in a sentence. Uh, the reality is we live in the world of sound bites, and people try to define you just in an, in an instant. They make a snap judgment about you and who you are. People define me all the time. My name is Carlos Rodriguez. And that summons either a uh, shortstop for the Major League Baseball League or a migrant worker or someone, some picture they have in their mind of a person that goes with a name like Carlos Rodriguez. Celebrities spend millions of dollars manufacturing their persona so people will have an image, an impression of them. And as we turn to this particular period in our yearly calendar, we have to ask the question, Jesus, who is he? If you walk into the supermarket and look at the various tabloids, you have all sorts of uh, tabloids and magazine cover covers that talk about Jesus. He's a great teacher. Or maybe he's a, a legend. Some say Jesus was a tool used by political powers to achieve their agenda. But of course, we have to ask the question, who does Jesus say he is? Jesus' answer really is quite simple. 
If you want to know who I am, look to the cross. Because Jesus is exactly to you who his cross is and what his cross is. This crowd that were, was ushering Jesus into Jerusalem had a radically different picture of Jesus than who he actually was. They saw him as a warrior king who was coming in to destroy the Romans, to free them from political oppression. When they discover that he is not the snap judgment that they have made of him, they will turn on him. The same crowds that are shouting Hosanna to the son of David will be shouting crucify him by the end of the week. But the point of this sermon is not to figure out who they say he is, but rather to examine and know the answer to the question, who do you say he is? See, the reality is we want an earthly king who will serve us. But God has given us a heavenly king who will save us. And so we must re re recognize and worship the crucified king who will, who will save us rather than the imposter king who will serve us. In order to do that, we need to do three things. Number one, we have to recognize his coming. We have to recognize who it is that is walking into Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday. Number two, we need to receive his healing. We all are broken inside. And in order to take advantage of all that Jesus has to offer, we need to receive his healing. Finally, number three, we need to respond in worship. Because Jesus is exactly to you what his cross is. So let's begin. I want to talk a little bit about the climate. Passover is approaching and Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And at that point, the city is swelling from its normal occupancy of about 200,000 people to well over a million. It's a charged atmosphere, and everybody is talking about Jesus. They know that he's been performing these variety of miracles. And indeed, in Bethany, which is right outside the city, Jesus has raised someone from the dead, Lazarus. And the word has spread. And as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, he sends two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks anything to you, simply say to them, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now right away when you read that, you say, what? How is that possible that that person would know with the simple words that the Lord needs them and would release his donkey and his coal in order to be given over to strangers. But there is a great plan underway here, and there is a great God who is in control of all circumstances and is planning this out exactly the way he wants it to go. And this very thing was prophesied hundreds of hundreds of years before. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Notice that prophecy said that your king is coming to you. And as the people see this donkey, they would know this scripture and they would, they would know the significance of it. And the people respond as they see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Verse 8 says that most of the crowd... So think of this. This is, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people spread their cloaks on the road. 
and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What are they doing here? Why are they doing these things? Well, we understand intuitively the concept of laying one's cloak on the road. It's rolling out the red carpet in ancient terms. It's what you would do for a king as he is coming. It's a measure of respect and adulation. And they begin to take these palms and they begin to wave them around and to lay them at the feet of Jesus as he comes on this donkey. Now, palms, the palm tree, is a national symbol of Israel. It's very, very similar to the flag, the United States flag, uh, or the Union Jack for Britain. So, in effect, what we're seeing is a parade. A, a, a flash parade breaks out. The palm tree was used in various uh, palm fronds and various religious festivals, but probably the last time that it was used for a non-religious festival was for a man named Judas Maccabee. I don't know if you know who Judas Maccabee, Maccabee is actually not his last name, it's a title given to him. Maccabee means hammer, for Judas the hammer, because Judas the hammer was a military man who rose up from the ranks of Israel and defeated and drove out the Greeks and gave independence to the Jews. See, when they see Jesus, they think he's in the mold of Judas the hammer. He's one who comes in the name of the, of the Lord, the son of David, but he's even more powerful than Judas Maccabee because he has to drive out an even more powerful enemy, the Romans. Verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna means save us. But it's, it's come to have these political connotations. It could also mean save him. In essence, they're probably using it in that way to kind of say, God save the king. Here comes the king. God, watch over the king as the king comes to fight our battles, to defeat our enemies. You need to understand that what these people are uttering is outright sedition. To claim another king other than Caesar in a Roman-controlled territory is to invite having your head chopped off or being crucified. But these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are saying, God save the king, and they're waving the flag because they have in their hands what they believe as the ultimate weapon. Jesus Christ, who has control over disease, who can raise the dead, an unstoppable army of one, one who's finally emerged, who can free them from the despised Roman rule. And so this adulation and cheering is going on. But imagine their disappointment when they discover that Jesus has a far different agenda. For one thing, Jesus is arriving on a donkey, not a horse. When a conquering king comes to a city, if he comes for war, he comes on a stallion. But if he comes for peace, he comes on a donkey. Jesus is coming on a meek, in a meek and mild manner. Second, as Jesus gazes over Jerusalem, he weeps over it. 
He's not arousing the crowd, but rather he's weeping, saying, oh, if you only understood who it was that was coming to you today, but it has been hidden from you. And then Jesus comes in, and instead of going to the Antonia Fortress and wreaking havoc on the Roman garrisons, he comes into the temple, and he turns over the tables of the money changers, and he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What possessed them to miscalculate so egregiously concerning the person of Jesus Christ? Well, they believed that Jesus was a ticket. He was a means to an end. He was going to do for them what they wanted. He was going to perform. And when they didn't, they were angry and upset and confused and ultimately would shout for his demise, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on our children, ourselves and our children. They missed the point because they didn't understand why Jesus came. This is a strange analogy to make, but it's one I'm fascinated with and many sociologists have been fascinated as well with. It's regarding President Donald Trump's relationship with evangelical America. Strange analogy. Maybe a little too close to home. We'll see. Evangelicals for years have defined themselves as the values as values voters. People who prize the Bible and sexual morality and loving your neighbor as yourself. Donald Trump was the opposite of all of those things in terms of his character and his persona. Yet evangelical America has taken quite swimmingly to Donald Trump. Why was that? Sociologists are fascinated with this question. And as they've studied his speeches, they've seen a particular message that he would communicate when he would be in front of Christian crowds. This is directly from one of his speeches to a conservative Christian college. Christianity will have power, Trump said. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very, very well. Remember that. And when Trump was in office, he enacted pro-Christian policies. And when Trump was defeated, for some Christians, it was the equivalent to the sky falling. Why was that? Well, to some who were Christians, he was their protector. He was the bully who was on their side. The one who offered safety amid their fears that their country as they know it and their place in it was changing and changing quickly. They put their trust and hope in a man who ultimately could not deliver what the people wanted. And Trump is just a man who made promises. But there's something eerie about the comparison as we like to put our hope in bullies who will walk before us, who will offer safety amidst our fears. Those people shouting Hosanna were looking for a bully on their side who could defeat the Romans. And when Jesus did not deliver, they shouted, crucify him. But you see, Jesus came not to defeat the Romans. 
He came to defeat death itself. So why do you shout Hosanna? Are you looking for Jesus to do something for you or to do something to you? Is the problem in here or is the problem out there? See, you may say that there's nothing wrong with me. I need Jesus to fix my circumstances, to defeat my enemies, to solve my problems. But we're sadly mistaken if we have that perspective because the problem isn't here. Jesus came into the world to fix me and to fix you. And until our hearts are fixed, things will never be right. See, we want an earthly king who will serve us. But God gives us a heavenly king who will save us. This brings me to my second point, that if we recognize who he is and his coming, we must receive his healing. Verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus essentially goes crazy in the temple. I mean, we have a picture of Jesus meek and mild, but there's no one who's meek and mild who turns over tables and makes a cord of whip, a, a, a whip of cords and drives out people. And it says that he drove out all uh, who sold and bought in the temple. Now, this was a massive undertaking. I don't know if you understand how big this was. And yet Jesus managed to drive out all of them. He was wild. He was unstoppable. No one could stop him. As Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So you need to understand why Jesus was so angry. You need to understand the purpose of the temple to understand that. See, the temple was a place of relationship. It was a place where God could come and could dwell with his people and they could be in communion with one another. Deuteronomy 4.7 puts it this way, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Jesus calls it a house of prayer. It's a place of communion and intimacy with God. It was not only a place of relationship, it was also a place of healing. It's a place where sacrifices were done uh, in order to uh, free people from their sins, to forgive them, if only temporarily, from their sins. It was a place where holiness could be. It was a place of relationship, a place of healing, and finally a place of evangelism. It's a place of prayer for all nations. It was a place where the world could come and they could see God in all of his fullness and beauty and worship him as well. But this temple had become corrupt. In order to give sacrifices, the rules that the chief priests had set up, you had to buy your produce, your animals, from within the temple itself. And the system that the high priest had set up, he sold franchise fees so that you, if you wanted to, uh, uh, to buy, if you wanted to set up a stall, if you will, 
in order to sell animals for the sacrifice, you had to do it in the court of Gentiles. And in order to do that, you had to buy a franchise. It's kind of like uh, an airport, those coveted spots in an airport of all those particular stores. And you had to pay an exorbitant fee for a franchise in order to sell in the temple. And thus, in order to recoup your pro and make a profit, you had to sell an animal 10 times what it was worth. And in order to buy in the temple, you had to buy with a certain type of coinage. You couldn't use Roman coinage. So there were money changers there who charged a 25% upcharge in order to change your money so that you could pay 10 times more for an animal than it was actually worth on the street. It was a place of corruption. And Jesus came to drive it out that he might cleanse the temple that he might restore it. He calls it my house. Can you imagine coming home to your house and seeing something like this happening within your four walls? Now, why does Jesus come into Jerusalem right before he's about to be crucified and do this? He's giving a picture of what he intends to do to you and me. See, why did God make man? He made man in his image to be able to dwell with him in intimacy and relationship. See, the temple is simply a macrocosm of the human heart. What a nation can do corporately is what God intends to do individually with each one of us. And in order to do that, the human heart must be a holy place. Psalm 5.4 puts it this way, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. And much like the temple has become corrupted, the human heart became corrupted. In the garden as man and woman rebelled against God, saying, Thanks God, but no thanks. I want to be in charge. I want to live life on my own. I want to depose you from your throne and to step on it instead. The scriptures say that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result, much like those temple uh, grounds, was total corruption in the human heart. In Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Jesus came to cleanse the temple. It's a beautiful picture after he cleanses the temple. In verse 14 it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And in the same way, Jesus came to drive out corruption in you and me. And how did he do that? By destroying it at the cross. See, in the temple, he could drive out the bad people. But the problem is, in our human hearts, we are the bad people. He can't drive us out. In the temple, he punished the evildoers. But my problem with me is that I am the evildoer. And so Jesus will come and he comes to take our place. 
He comes to take the punishment that we deserve, to cleanse the sin in our hearts by taking it to himself. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. The result is that because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's why Christ came. He came to heal us. He came to cleanse us, to make us pure because we could not. $2,340. That was the bill that I got on my desk from First Atlantic Restoration. That's the cost that it takes to sanitize the sanctuary. See, one of the deals we had with uh, Lynn Haven Prez is when, uh, if we had anyone who tested positive for COVID that we would, that had been here, we would have uh, to bring in a professional cleaning service and they would do their thing. And so I called First Atlantic Restoration. May their name be forever cursed. <laughs> And they came in with this fumigator, this giant trunk and this long hose. And they, you know, had their masks and everything. And they had, you know, me clear out. They said, this is going to take a couple hours. And they proceeded to go over this entire, I don't know, thousands and thousands of square feet and sanitize it with this special chemical that could kill down to the microscopic level anything. I'm not sure anything can breathe and live in here anymore. That's why you're wearing your mask, by the way, so you don't keel over and drop dead. The final bill, it was very, very expensive. See, we had a problem in our human hearts that we couldn't fix. It was diseased. Our hearts were corrupted. And God could not and would not dwell in a diseased heart. But Christ came. Christ paid. Christ cleaned and Christ fixed. So what is it that you truly long for? Is it for my enemies to be defeated? Is it for my outside world and circumstances to all be peachy keen? Or is it for Jesus to clean my heart? To dwell with me in holy communion? See, that's why he came. So shout Hosanna to the son of David for the right reasons. Welcome him in to the temple of your heart. Let him have all of you and to do his work that was oh so expensive, oh so pricey on the cross to make a place that he could dwell and come in and be with you and you with him forever. See, we want an earthly king who will serve us. But God gives us a heavenly king who will save us. This brings me to my final point, that we must respond in worship. See, we have a choice in how we respond. There was the first crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
many for the wrong reasons. But there was another crowd in this sermon, wasn't there? Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, these children recognized who it was who was coming into the temple. Children don't have any political agenda. They're not thinking further than what's in front of them right then and there. But the children somehow recognized who Jesus was. Jesus said in Luke 18, 17, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So how do we receive what Jesus came to do for us? We accept it as a free gift with childlike trust and hope. I remember when my children, when they were younger, when one of them would skin their knee, the first thing they would do after they started crying was look for their mother or myself. And they would come straight to us first and foremost. They knew that they could not fix the pain. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the necessary tools. And so they put themselves in our care as we'd pick them up and put them on our knee. And we would take some ointment and we would rub it on their knee. And we would take a Band-Aid or a bandage and we would put it on all the while whispering quietly to them, letting them know that everything was going to be okay. And we would rest in our Father's arms. See, Jesus came on Easter to make you holy so that he could be with you. So what is it that you want from him? Well, I don't want anything from him. Okay. Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody. I want him to triumph over my enemies. I want a weapon. You've got the wrong guy. Find somebody else that's not Jesus. Or I want to be free. I want to be who I was meant to be. I want to be cleansed from my sins. I want to live in harmony with him in his presence. He came to clean you from the inside out. So receive him this Easter. Receive him as Savior. Receive him as King. Receive him as friend. Receive him as Father. We want an earthly king who will serve us. Thank goodness God sent us a heavenly king who will save us. So recognize and worship the crucified king who saves us not the imposter king who serves us. That's our hope for this Easter. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to fix us from the inside out. For we are desperately broken and saved for you to cleanse us through your blood shed on the cross and to make us a right and to come and dwell with us, we will never know what it means to truly be alive. So I pray this Easter that we would fling open the doors of our heart and we would welcome you in. 
and we would uh, worship you and shout praises to your name for you are worthy of all of our worship. In fact, you are the only one who is worthy of all of our worship. So let us give it freely, openly with joy. Meet us, Lord. Pray for every single person within earshot of me that they would not leave this place without giving their hearts to you, the only one who has proven himself worthy of caring for it. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.